Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of the Ones Bits and Podcast. And joining me today is an old friend, uh, Grant Williams at TTMYGH, who gave up two hours of his time, was late to get his dinner. Um, we got into some real great uh, conversations. We got a bit carried away. Um, well, I did, uh, but Grant was, uh, was very, very generous with his time considering the amount of other projects that he's got going on, which you'll learn about. Um, just a huge thanks. Uh, you know, we get into a Bitcoin conversation uh, deep into this because, um, you know, I didn't want um, it to be just focused on that. I wanted to find out more about who Grant was um, because many of us know him from Real Vision and these other podcasts like The Endgame and, you know, exposing us all to much of the the macro world that we were probably completely unaware of before uh you know he he, he stepped up to to start educating as many people as possible uh with raul when they found a real vision so i hope you like this one it's um it's a look into you know uh, grant's whole career uh, how that was shaped and uh a journey through uh for, for many of the listeners, maybe a, a journey through uh, markets that um, that uh, you know existed before you were even born. So um, just settle back and uh, enjoy this one. Uh, just a quick shill uh, for uh, for the usual guys at Adam Woodham's one for helping me produce the show and put it all together, and for the uh, the, the start music uh, at Hodler than Now for the the music in the background that you can hear that was. Um, you know, put together for the At uh, Twenty One Ism projects, and uh, of course to At Obi and uh, Coinfloor, Coinfloor.co.uk forward slash Bitten for placing your trust in in me and and helping um, support the show. Really appreciate that. Let's get to this one uh, as usual. Lauren um, asks the first question, and she she had a shot at introducing the show, which uh, hopefully. Uh, Hopefully Adam will leave in. We'll see. Have a great one, guys, and I'll uh, I'll see you after the show. Do, do you want to do the intro, or should no, I do the intro? No, you do the intro. Okay. I'm really bad at intros. You'll get better if you practice. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just go. Well, you know what? This is good because it's not live. Yeah. So if you don't like it, you can record it again. So you should have a go at it. And if you don't like it, you can just say, Dad, you know what? I don't want to use that. Fire it out. I don't even know what to say. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. What? That's way too long. You need to make it short. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Once Bitten. Just say welcome to the Lauren Podcast. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly what Grant just said. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Lauren let's Carl. just let's just get on to the. Welcome to the I, Lauren Podcast. No, One. No. No. Two. Three. <laughs> welcome to the Lauren Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. And joining me by um, uh, popular request 
is Mr. Grant Williams himself at TTMYGH. And uh, Lauren is here with me to introduce the show as well. Welcome to the Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Lauren. We've we've already practiced this off air. You can do this. Come on. You can do it. The show must go on. (laughs) No. Okay. Well, at least welcome our guest. No, we've lost it. Hey, Grant, how are you? Oh, hi, mate. How are you, Princey? Very, very well, mate. It's great to see you. Really, really good to catch up. Um, it's been a while. It has it's been, a, been while. a while, mate. It has. And a little context for listeners. Grant and I know each other personally. We met back in Singapore back in 2013. The first time I met Grant, he was manning the grill at a friend's barbecue. and he was Yes, I was. He was flipping sausages and kebabs like the best of them. That's, that's my, see, my Australian passport qualifies me to be able to do that. Otherwise, you're not allowed anywhere near the grill. <laughs> so, Lauren, you, um, in, in true fashion, you're going to lead off with the, uh, the first question. The first question, mm. yeah. And do you remember what it was? Yeah. What is your, finally, uh, what is your podcast about? Oh, you said there weren't going to be any trick questions. <laughs> I'm not supposed to know that. How the hell am I supposed to know, Lauren? Goodness no, me. What is my podcast about? Well, Apparently, um, you're, apparently well, you're a pro, so you should know what your podcast, what you're doing your podcast. Lauren, 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 I've been faking it all these years, <laughs> and now you, of all people, have found me out. This is this is just a disaster. This is a disaster. I don't know what I'm going to do about this. We, we can edit this out, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Okay, fine. Thank God for that. Um, what is my podcast about? Well, I I do uh, several podcasts, funny enough, because I'm I'm just too uh, too interested in too many things to do one. So I have one that I do with a good friend of mine called Bill Fleckenstein, which is called The End Game. And in that, we are trying to figure out what is going to happen to the world from here and how the move from the world we live in now to whatever comes next is going to is going to take place and how it's going to occur. So that's we've, we've talked to a lot of people about inflation and deflation and gold, and we will be talking to the people about Bitcoin. We promise at some point when we can figure out how to do it right. Um, I do another podcast with another dear friend of mine called Stephanie Pomboy uh, called the Super Terrific Happy Hour. I think you'd like that one, Lauren. And in that, we just talk to uh, interesting people about the way they see the world right now and some of the interesting things we're doing. We've had some, some really great guests on, on that show. And then I do another podcast with another good friend of mine called Dr. Ben Hunt, uh, which is called The Narrative Game. And that is talking about how uh, narrative is used to kind of shape the way we see the world. So, Lauren, when you see the news or when you read the newspaper, um, the stories you read generally, they're not just news like they used to be. They have they're written by people and people have opinions. So, you know, I'm sure you have opinions about all kinds of things. Um, when I last saw you, I think you had opinions about Peppa Pig and that was about the extent of it. But now you've probably got a lot more Don't grown up Don't say anything about opinions. that. Yeah, I know. Edit this out, please. Edit it out. Edit, edit, edit. But um, so, so Ben and I talk about how those stories and how people's viewpoints kind of create the way that people want us to think about things. And it, it's a very powerful thing to do. So I have a lot of fun with those. Um, I'd let all my guests and my friends do all the heavy lifting, and I just kind of sit in the background hoping nobody is smart enough like you to find me out, you little rat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you, we, we, he's going to do a lot of editing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Actually, I think you'll find he'll leave a lot of this in. No! <laughs> well, do you have any more questions or are you going to say goodnight to Grant? Uh, I, yeah, I think, I, I think that's it. Think that's okay. it? Well, I, I think, hope my answer yeah, is well, Grant was shaking in his boots. <laughs> well, thank you so much for asking the first question and for introducing the show. I did not even say a thing. Yeah, you, you said did. welcome to the Lauren show. You did. No, I didn't. <laughs> Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Bye. Say hi to your mom and all the kids for me. Okay. All right, take care. Thanks, mate. Um, and did you miss a podcast out because you were doing the, the sports one for a while? Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. No, I, so I'm, I, I, I'm doing a, a, a podcast called Are You Not Entertained, which is all about the world of sport and business. And that's uh, that's been a lot of fun. I'm, I, again, I've got, I, I'm very lucky. All these podcasts, I have really, really smart people to, as I said, do the heavy lifting. So two good friends of mine, Roger Mitchell and, and Giles Morgan, both of whom uh, have had serious roles in, in the sports world. Roger was the chief exec of the Scottish Premier League back in the day, and, and Giles was the head of corporate sponsorship for HSBC, who are one of the biggest um, corporate sponsors in, in all of sport. So, you know, they look at business, they look at sponsorship, and I kind of sit in the middle asking dumb questions and trying to uh, trying to get to the bottom of a lot of stuff. But it's, it's a lot of fun, and we've, we've had some fantastic guests on there. So you know, anyone who's interested in sport and sports business, but, um, I think they enjoy those conversations a great deal. Now, Grant, I don't want to blush, but I have been trying to emulate your interviewing style. Uh-oh. And I remember... <laughs> hey, I, I'm, I remember just, I'm just glad you... to use the word style. I didn't realize I had a style. This, this is great. This is progress. <laughs> well, I remember you and I chatting um, way back in 2014, just after the launch of Real Vision. And I do want to go down that rabbit hole because, um, you know, you were a very key part of creating that. And... Um, the, the difference that's made to to my life and many other people's lives um, can't go underrated. And I know how much hard work you put into that. And you actually put your body on the line. You know, for, for people listening, uh, Grant was flying around like a crazy, crazy guy. And it wasn't all business class and champagne. It was the dodgiest, dodgiest, <laughs> yes, cheapest, <it> like... <laughs> You know, budget air, Asian airlines you could ever have, oh, yeah. ever have dreamed the, the of. The middle seat um, in row 64, that was me. <laughs> Which didn't recline. Um, and I remember asking you very early days um, of becoming a, a Real Vision subscriber and, and um, watching the interviews and just being blown away by the content and what you guys were putting out. I'm like, mate, like, you know, you, you're facing some of these people that are like true legends in the business, you know, one, do you get nervous and how do you come up with like your, your interview style and, um, you know, what kind of preparation do you do for each one? And you, your, your answer was, Dan, I just ask a question and shut the fuck up. Yeah, pretty much. That's, 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 uh, that's, uh, I, I, I figured very, very early on that, um, the more the guest is talking and the less I'm talking, the more people are going to get out of this. And so, um, you know, I, look, I, I, I try to put myself in the position of the listener and, 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 and I'm just interested. You know, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in what these people have to say. I'm, I, I don't go in with an agenda. I'm not looking to, you know, there's no gossip. I, I, I'm there because I want to find out something from them. I learn something from them. And, and, and I think if you go into these things with a preconceived notion of what you want to learn, um, you're missing a trick because, uh, you know, they, they may not have the insight that you, you're looking for on a particular topic, but but by by kind of searching for that one thing, you're potentially missing all kinds of fascinating information. So I, you know, I, I I go into these conversations just uh, 
trying to come out of them being smarter. And, and you know, so far in, I don't know, probably 500 of them I did over my time at Real Vision, I, you know, I've never failed to come out of any of these without something that I didn't know going into it. And oftentimes something I wasn't looking for. It, it just kind of happened organically in the conversation. And, um, you know, that, that, that to me is the, is the most valuable thing I can do as, as an interviewer is just try to, to, to represent the audience, be, be curious, be, um, be engaged in the conversation and, and see where it goes and, and, you know, have the humility to, to sit back and realize that, that, you know, no one's there to listen to me. I mean, they're just not. And if they enjoy my contribution, that's great. But, but for my mind, the, the less I can talk and the more I can listen, the, the better off everybody's going to be, including me. Yeah, it's, um, it's great advice. And uh, like I said, I try and do exactly the same. Um, but on this one, uh, I want to get you talking as much as possible because, you know, myself included and many of the listeners out there who have listened to you on, on many of the interviews are like, wow, I wish I could know more about Grant. And uh, so I want to kind of like get this back to where... <laughs> That one of the last times actually we met face to face was when I flew to London to interview you as a um, a possible employee for Real Vision, and uh, the setup was what hotel was it in? God, do you I remember? remember? I don't remember. No, it was somewhere in Mayfair. It's like the four yeah, cities. You, 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 you have to understand, Prince. I mean, you think how many cities and how many different hotels and stuff I've been into, don't you? Trust me, remember the exact one. It's 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 small, I'm afraid. <laughs> So Real Vision were running auditions and I was like, I would love to do that. Um, so I flew across, met Grant, and um, there was like 10 minute audition slots to, to ask you questions. And um, I figured what the listeners would most li likely want to hear about is your background and you know where you came from and how you entered the markets and all your battle scars, which I don't think we've ever heard on any of the other podcasts that you've, uh, that you've ever done. So um, let's wind it back. How did how did Grant Williams find his way into the the wide world of financial markets? Well, I'm sure I'm sure I have spoken about this at some point. So if anyone's heard this before, you can you can tune out for the next few minutes and come back when it gets interested again. But um, <laughs> look, I, uh, I I cut my teeth back in the, the mid 1980s in, in the Japanese markets when they were going crazy, and it was it was you know, I knew I wanted to be in finance. I knew I wanted to be um, a trader. Um, but I, you know, originally I wanted to be a foreign exchange trader because that's what, uh, one of my, one of my dad's good friends was <clears throat> when I was a kid, I looked up to this guy. I thought he was just the coolest guy in the world. And so I wanted to literally, I wanted to do what he did. And I found that he was a foreign exchange trader. I was like, right, I want to do that. I had no idea what it was, but it just seemed like the coolest thing you could do. And, um, so, I, you know, obviously I then went out and found more about it and, and was interested in, in finance anyway. And so that was kind of. The path I wanted to go down, and, and quite by chance, I ended up um, when I should have been studying for my uh, for my A levels. I ended up working in my holidays um, at a place in London, uh, a bank called Robert Fleming and Co., which was a, a small English merchant bank or Scottish merchant bank, I should say. Not upset the Scots listening, um, which has long since been subsumed by uh, by J.P. Morgan Chase. But um, you know, at the time, it was a small investment bank. Um, I forget how many employees there were in the entire bank, but it was it was hundreds less than a thousand. Um, and uh, I, I was I had a job in my holidays 
literally checking telexes in the in the Eurobond settlements department. And I I spent I think three weeks there and really enjoyed working there. It was a great atmosphere. I, I really liked the people and I seemed to fit in quite well there. But for me, the most important thing was there was a, a small thin partition wall between that office and the and the dealing room. Uh, and I had to go in and out of the dealing room all day long to pick up tickets and do all the kind of menial stuff. And and every time I went in there, you could feel the excitement in the room. And I would I would kind of loiter and linger as long as I could to try and pick up anything. I mean, just from jargon and phrases, whatever I could kind of pick up, I would I would I would listen and I'd ask questions. I was never afraid to ask questions of people. And and um so so when I finished my three weeks there, the, the guy that ran the back office, a really nice guy called David Draper, who sadly passed away since then, said to me on my last day, he said, look, you know, I really enjoyed having you. If you want a job here when you finish your exams, um, you know, we'd love to have you. And so you know, I, went, I went back to school and I, I had to do my exams. And I, my dad, who'd been in finance, I, I spoke to my dad and we had a conversation about this. And I, you know, I, I wanted to go to university and read history and, and – um, I said to my dad, look, I, I've been offered this job, but I don't know whether to take that or go to university. And he said, well, you know, what you, if, you, if you go to university, what are you going to do when you come out? I said, well, I'm going to try and get a job in that room. He said, well, it's entirely up to you. You can do whatever you want. But it seems to me that if you want the job in that room, you're a lot closer to it if you go and work in the room next door than if you go to university for four years and, and then come out and try and get back in that room again. So, um, but, but, you know, Princey, obviously this was a time in the UK when – you, you didn't need to have a college degree to get a job. Today, you know, this, this, this story wouldn't happen today. Um, you know, I managed to get a job in that room without a college degree and, uh, and kind of got thrown in at the deep end. And through a whole series of, of fortuitous circumstances, I, I was kind of – there was an empty seat in the dealing room within um, well, a little over a year because this was so the Japanese market when things were crazy and teams were getting headhunted left and right – and our entire team got up and left, and purely, I think, by the fact that I, I was I was there, I'd been around, people knew my face, uh, I hadn't pissed off the wrong people, and I, you know, obviously with the questions I'd asked and my enthusiasm for it, uh, I guess they got a sense of this is something I wanted to do, and so they gave me a chance, and, and thankfully I didn't screw it up. Um, and so, you know, I, I found myself as an assistant to one of the Japanese warrant traders, and again, that was an incredible learning experience for me. Uh, and he then left to go somewhere else, and so they handed me his book and said, "Right, it was real sink or swim stuff." And so I, you know, I was given my first trading book at the beginning of 1987, and I was really still just finding my way uh, when Black Monday came in October. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it was an extraordinary thing to see happen. I mean, truly extraordinary to the market go down you know, by almost a quarter in a day. Uh, and and I, like, I was I was way too young and way too inexperienced. It, 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 it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had no idea what was going on. And fortunately, because we were trading the Japanese market, you know that bounced very quickly because it was it was still yet to reach that kind of blow off top we saw in '89. So there was still a lot of pent up buying So it wasn't as painful. You know, it was like I remember it as a bad week in the office but in the Japanese markets, which is you know, which is kind of crazy. But it, it, again, it really opened my eyes to to what can happen when 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 things get really squirrely. And, and even though we've only seen a couple of events like that in in the what thirty odd years since then, um, they were all important events. And and you know, I, I can honestly say that uh, that I kind of had prepared myself for each of them. Now I, I was early 
each of those three times, but um, but happily so. You know, once once the events transpired, uh, I was I was very glad that I'd been cautious and glad that I hadn't got sucked into the to the, to the final blow off tops of those last rallies. So you know, that's really how I got into the markets and um, you know into a raging bull market in Japan and and through. The, the the sharpest bear market in history was a great battleground for me to to kind of learn my trade and, and learn most importantly I think uh, mistakes that you don't want to make twice that, that's really been how I've tried to live my whole career is is I know I'm going to make mistakes just don't make the same one twice if you can avoid it and touch wood um, you know I've done a pretty good job of that so far yeah awesome and so for for those listening that are you know of the millennial age group or the even there's even some zoomer um uh hey we're all zoomers that, that through lockdown, to it. Yeah, yeah it's true <laughs> we're on zoom right now um could you explain exactly you know the lead up to 1987 and what that crash was and how it came about um just to try and round people's knowledge out a little bit. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny, I, I forget that there are people now doing stuff that weren't even alive when it happened. It's just terrifying for me, fans, but it's, it's true. <laughs> I mean, you know, 1987 was, um, it, you know, a, a fall. The, the Dow Jones lost 22% of its value in a single day. Um, and it really came out of the clear blue sky. I mean, the market was overheated and, and everyone kind of knew that, but we didn't have the kind of excess that we've that we saw in, in in 99 we didn't have the kind of excess we saw in 2007 uh and we certainly had nowhere near the excess we saw now and, th- and there were a lot of a lot of factors in this and, and people should um should should go back and, and read about it it's 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 great to read the history of these things and get a feeling for for how the mood was at the time and, and again you know I, I was luckily or not i was too young and too inexperienced to really to really be scarred by it because it, it was so sharp and, and so shocking that I didn't really have a chance to to let it affect me. Um, and, and I was surrounded by far more experienced guys and, and I saw just how shocking it was to them too. So you know, I didn't feel as though this thing had, had, had kind of caught me off guard and nobody else. It, it really did, did shock most people. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the market... From a technical perspective, was overbought. We had we had all kinds of arcane things going on, um, but at the end of the day, the, the the signs were there the week before. The market looked kind of unhinged the week before, but again, because we hadn't seen a big fall for a while, people just shrugged it off the same way they've been shrugging things off for the last few years. So. Um, it really did kind of come out the clear blue sky for a lot of people. Um, but it was such a sharp downdraft that it really was, you want to talk about a V-shaped recovery. This really was a V-shaped recovery. The market fell uh, by 22%. It's kind of stayed down there. It tried to rally a bit, stayed down there for a little while and then got off its knees and just began climbing again. And, and after that we had, you know, we had 12 years really of uninterrupted um, bull markets, which people could really kind of sit and ride comfortably until we, until we got into the, the late nineties and the, the dot com bubble. Yes, and we're going through that exact same thing again right now. Um, which I, I've I've heard you talk about this before, you and Fleck, and um, on Real Vision as well. Um, about you know you, you've got a big concern 
that there's a bunch of traders sitting out there that, you know, whether they walked into the market mid or early 09, have known nothing but buy the fucking dip. And that's the whole strategy. And they're not prepared for, you know, yes, we had an event in March, but I mean, what are your thoughts on if there's another real big unraveling and the amount of complexity that is now in the market? I mean, we've, we're, orders of magnitude more derivatives since, you know, like the last 10, 20 years, there's so many layers to this thing. There's so, it's just like this primed powder keg. Yeah. I I think the biggest danger, to be honest with you, is is the fact that, and look, when you say if we get another bigger revenue, of course we will. We we have done throughout history. Um, And, uh, you know, for anyone interested in this stuff, there are some, there are some tremendous books about this that, that, that people ought to read if they're interested. The first one, and this is a, a guy that um, Fleck and I interviewed last week on, on The Endgame, a guy called Ed Chancellor, wrote a book called um, Devil Take the Hindmost, in which he goes through uh, just about every mania and panic from the 1600s to, uh, to the dot-com bubble. And, and, and just reading the history, you can feel how palpably similar a lot of the situations were in many of those things to today. There are, there are some amazing parallels you can draw. Before him, Charles Kindleberger wrote something called Manias, Panics and Crashes, which again is, is a great chronicle of, of its time, uh, of a lot of similar episodes. Uh, and you know, probably my personal favorite has been the book called The Lords of Finance, which I've bored people to death about on, on podcast after podcast. It's written by a guy called Leoclat Ahmed. Um, and it tells the story of really the world's big four central bankers in the period um, leading up to the Great Depression. And when you read through these these books, you'll you, you, you'll be unable to help recognize a lot of the situations that are happening, a lot of the dynamics are in play, a lot of the, most importantly, the human emotion that was present at that time. Um, you know, it tends to be greer, uh, greed, sorry. Um, and, you know, I think everybody understands by now that markets really are all about greed and fear. But, but the, the point that I think reading these books helped me understand uh, is that not everybody is greedy. You know, greed is something that doesn't affect everybody, uh, but fear certainly is. Everybody gets afraid. We all, we're all we're all afraid um, at times, and so that's why you see these these episodes of greed on the upside when the bubbles get blown. Um, they're far less dramatic in their way than than the bursting because they don't suck everybody in. They don't suck everybody into the updraft. But when things start to fall precipitously, everybody gets afraid, and so. You, you get this wild overreaction. So I, I think that, honestly, the best thing anybody listening to this can do is to read history and read about previous panics, read about the Tulip Bubble, read about 87, read about John Law and the Mississippi Company, read about what happened in 2007-8, if you, if, you, if you weren't around for that. Um, there are so many of these illustrations. Read about the Great Depression, of course. There's, there's so many parallels there with what we're seeing now. Because... Even though we don't have a crystal ball, looking back to me is is the best thing you can do because most of the clues and most of the answers are there. They may look slightly different. You may have to kind of piece parts of it together and figure out which bits ring true and which don't and how things may have changed. But all the answers are there. Everything we're seeing now, really, we've seen before at some point in time, just maybe not in its present form. And another one of your quotes, or you probably borrowed it yourself, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? Yeah, That's yeah, um, exactly, exactly right. what you're getting at. Right. 
So let's get back to the dealing room because uh, we're suckers for this kind of stuff. You, you're a young man. You've gone through like uh, the 87 um, crash and then recovery. Um, you've That was London-based, but then you start doors start opening up for you in, in other parts of the world and in different markets. So could you talk us through, um, you know, what, what happened next? Yeah, well, I, I was very, very fortunate. I got invited to... Um to go out and work in Tokyo. And uh, you know, I jumped at the chance. I, I, I had a phone call saying, would you be interested in doing this? And I just said, yeah, I'll be there next Tuesday. Um, I, you know, I did, literally, I didn't know what I was going to be paid. I didn't know what my housing allowance was. I, I knew nothing. But all I knew was that the chance of me getting an opportunity like this was very slim. And I figured, you know what, if, if I hate it or it doesn't work, I, I can always come home. And I'm a great believer in that. And, you know, I've, I've spent the last 30 years of my life working at, around the world always with the knowledge that if I ever wanted to go back to the UK and, and be home, I could do it. I could be there in, in 24 hours from anywhere in the world. I've got a passport and I can get a plane ticket and I go home. And that's, that's really something that, um, that I, I'm glad I had that mindset because it allowed me to, to take opportunities that I'm sure many people would have been nervous about or daunted about. And, um, you know, it, it, I always had this desire to, to see the world and, and understand it and, and see how other people lived, how other markets functioned. And so, you know, I went to Japan in um, in early 1989. So I, I, I was sitting in Tokyo trading those equity markets through that last crazy year when, you know, even you know, we knew this was a bubble. We knew this was going to end. But, it, but the thing I remember is it, you, you, you still get sucked in, even if you think it's a bubble even if you know it's a bubble, you can't help when you're in the middle of it, but get sucked in. And, uh, you know, the favorite story I heard of this was Stan Druckenmiller, who famously in the, in the dot-com bubble, he was working for George Soros. And, you know, he, 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 again, knew this was a bubble, this dot-com situation. He knew it was going to end. He knew it was going to end badly. And he sat this thing out and, and he watched these young kids uh, who were trading the tech pad for, for Soros making fortunes. Just getting them. The, they, had, they had no scars. They had no previous experiences of how these things end. They just piled in and were making money hand over fist. And, and he eventually just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, and so he dived into this market and he lost a billion dollars of Soros's money doing this. And this is Stan Druckerman, you know, arguably the greatest trader, certainly of our generation. He's probably up there in the top five of all time. And he was being interviewed by Ken Langone at. Um, at the Lone Pine Club, I think it was. And, and you can find this transcript on the internet, and I, and I would urge you to read it. Um, and Ken Langone said to him, you know, tell me what you learned from this experience. And, and Stan's answer was one of the best answers I've ever heard to any question. He said, I didn't learn anything. He said, I learned nothing. I knew I shouldn't have done it, um, and I did it any, anyway. And, and that, to me, was such an important realization that even though you know it's a dumb thing to do, you can still get sucked into this stuff. And many, many people did in, in, in Japan in those in those late 80s. But again, Japan was different in that on December the 31st, 1989, when the market was at 40,000, <clears> it just stopped going up. And on January the 1st, 1999, it started going down. And it was as simple as that. It didn't crash. Japan never really crashed. Uh, it just ran out of fumes. Uh, rates started going up and, and that pricked the bubble and it started going down. And yes, we had some, you know, we had some, rough down days uh, but it, it really took people a while to realize hey this is why is it different why it's, you know why we just bought the dip why didn't it go up we just had three days where it dipped we bought all three of them why is it not gone up and to watch that mindset change and to watch people slowly become 
uh, aware that, that the, the entire paradigm of that market had changed and, and the future of Japan had changed. The psyche of investors had changed. The psyche of the public had changed. Um, was interesting to watch because it wasn't the traditional crash echo and then kind of, uh, you know, flailing around looking for a bottom. It just, you look at the chart, it went up, it turned around and it started going down. And realistically speaking, it's been going down more or less for, for, for 20 years now with, with the odd kind of anti-crash, if you want to call it that, where the market had a spike uh, when, when another kind of full storm presented itself to Japanese investors. And, and, you know, that was proven to be wrong. You know, Japan is, the exact reverse of what's happened in, in the US and other Asian markets, particularly the US, where you've had you know, periodic crashes, but this, this wave of optimism that has carried markets relentlessly higher, a wave of optimism, plus obviously unlimited funds from the Federal Reserve. But Japan's been the opposite of that. It's been, it's been doom and gloom for 20 years, punctuated by brief periods of euphoria, which were soon squashed <laughs> uh, mercilessly. Um, you know, I, I suspect this is going to change. I suspect that 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 dynamic will reverse. I think Japan is likely to be a good place to be and, and the US is likely to be a bad place to be in, in coming years. But, you know, we, we await the kind of the switchover in those because for, for the moment people still want to be long uh, US markets even with them doing what they've done in the last six months. Yeah. And um, I, I'm not sure anyone will um, appreciate just how much of a different world it would have been for you as a young man in 1989 leaving London to get to Tokyo. I mean, Tokyo now, Japan is still a pretty, like, you know, when you yeah. when you land there, it's still like this kind of out there place, but it's been westernized to a certain degree. But back in those days, man, like that that would have just been crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, there was, there was, I think, one direct flight a week back then. You, know, you used to have to go through Anchorage, Alaska uh, to get to Japan. So it really was, it really was um, a whole other world. And no, I loved it. I absolutely fell in love with Japan. Uh, culture, the food, the people. I had a fantastic time there, made some great friends, and I, and I love everything about Japan. And, and I, you know, I go back whenever I can. I haven't been back for probably five or six years now, but it's a wonderful, wonderful country. Um, completely bonkers back then. I mean, completely and utterly bonkers. And for me, as a 22-year-old kid with with you know, little to no experience, I mean, you know, my eyes were wide open the entire time I was there. I, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe what was happening. Um, and it, you know, I, I, I was surrounded by guys who were way more worldly than me, thankfully, and, and uh, you know, they had a lot of fun at my expense on many occasions. Um, but those are stories for for over a beer, not for a podcast. But um, <laughs> but it, but it was. But but I think you know, I think anytime you go into situations like that with the mindset that I can learn something here. Um, they're never really going to do you any damage. Uh, you know, I think if you pay attention and you do learn and you learn from good experiences, you learn from bad experiences, uh, it, it's, it's the best thing you can do. I mean, you, you, what I learned in, in those years in Japan, I could never have learned from reading books or doing a CFA exam or, you know, sitting on a training course. I could never have learned that. Um, you know, I, I, I got beaten up. I, I made a lot of money. I lost a lot of money. Uh, and, and I learned, as I said, the kind of things you, you cannot learn from a textbook. So for me, it, it was it was an opportunity that I'll always be thankful for. Um, you know, the guy that, that uh, offered me that job, Cliff Benford, uh, was a great mentor to me, and, and he, he gave me that opportunity. And I, and I like to think I grabbed it with both hands because, I, I, you know, I realized how fortunate I was. And, and you know, I, I don't look back on anything 
uh, I look, look back on that with anything but a sense of, of how lucky I was to be given the chance, really. And then you climb the ranks and uh, several other job offers come in, several other countries. Um, I don't know if you want to give a, a quick list of the, the who's who. Who, who. Who did you work for and in, in which well, markets? I, and then I've got yeah, a question. I, I worked in, um, I've spent time in, um, in Hong Kong, New York and Australia with Credit Suisse uh, over a period of about, I guess, 10 years I was with them. Um, I spent uh, another 10 odd years with UBS working in uh, in uh, London and, and in New York. Um, had uh, a couple of brief spells at other places and then ended up working for a dear friend of mine, uh, Steve Diggle. And again, you know, a, 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 big, uh, a big thread throughout my career has been my enormous good fortune at being the recipient of, you know, the largesse and the, and the, and the mentorship of, of guys like, uh, of guys like Steve and Steve, you know, Steve took a chance on me and gave me a job, um, at a period in my career, which, uh, you know, <laughs> looking at the final on Bloomberg, but, um, you know, Steve, Steve was, uh, played an incredible role in my career. He's, he's been a fantastic mentor. He's a, he's a, incredible human being and he um he gave me a chance uh, to to work with him and, and run one of his funds at Vulpes which uh you know but for that I my my career again would have taken a, a wholly different and uh who knows um what kind of path it would have taken but uh you know really things that make a home and and real vision both of them owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Steve Diggle and, and, and him giving me uh, a job and a platform and and him being willing to indulge me trying to trying to do those two projects while I was working for him. So, you know, without, without Steve, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So, uh, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm tremendously grateful to him. And then uh, once Real Vision came along, uh, it really just became the focus for all of us. I mean, all four of us were, were working around the clock trying to put this thing together and trying to figure out, again, all the mistakes we made. And we made dozens. I mean, we, we made mistake after mistake after mistake. Um, and thank God we did, because if, if, if we hadn't made those mistakes, it, w- it would have ended up with something completely different. Now, whether that would be better or, or worse, who knows, but it ended up as something that I think all of us can be incredibly proud of. And so, you know, thank God we made the mistakes we did when we did and, and, and most importantly, learned from them. So I get a question now around, um, you know, you spent God knows how many, uh, like, Multiple decades like at the printing. front end. God knows how long. I'm a grandfather now. <laughs> Congratulations, mate. Congratulations. And I'm sure they'll lap these stories up uh, as, as, much as, as much as the listeners. This will move on. Be, they'll have chips implanted in their head that just say stream pepper pig to them, I think, by the time that they get this. This will be yeah. obsolete. You and I will be dinosaurs by then. Mate, they'll be able to just like look up left and find um, Granddad's podcast episodes in their in their uh, mind memory. Listen, I don't care um, how how far down the track we're looking. If you think Granddad's podcasts are going to trump Peppa Pig at any point, you're out of your mind. <laughs> and you know this as well as I do. You've you've been through the Peppa phase. Oh my god! Yeah, it's an assault of uh, yeah of madness. <laughs> but I want to ask you a question. You know. Very few people have been exposed to what we've been exposed to, and that's the front end of a dealing room or or a brokerage, um, and um, how quickly those markets move, and the sheer volumes that pass through um, just one single desk in a day. Like it's, 
I, I look back on it now and it just blows my mind. And I, I would like to ask you, you know, what, what was like the, the, the craziest thing do you think that you saw or like the craziest position you were holding ever throughout your career that's still like, you, you know, you'll have nightmares about, you wake up the next morning, you got cold sweats um, because you're reliving those days. Well, I think, like, again, the, the Japanese experience, we, we were very, very fortunate because for, for the longest time in, those, in my first and my formative years in that market, I mean, you literally had to buy somewhere to hold it and sell it the next day for a profit. And, and every now and again, you'd have a day where that didn't work. And, and yeah, it would always come as, as a shock. But, but it was really, it was, it was a one-way market. And so, you know, 87 taught me lessons. The, the turn in Japan, as I said, it, it, it definitely taught me lessons, but it wasn't, it wasn't a painful lesson. It was, it was more of a slow realization that the world had changed. And, and again, that's, that's a, a useful lesson to learn. I mean, really... Um, I, I think for me, the, the the toughest period I had was going into was going into two thousand seven, two thousand eight. You know, I moved out to Australia in, at the end of two thousand five, beginning of oh six, and I at that point I'd been reading a lot about this thing called subprime, and I and I I I I found on the internet um, a guy who was a real estate broker in in Florida, and he was writing some extraordinary stories about what was going on down there and I, you know and I called this guy and just out in the blue and, and found his email found his number on his website called him and had a long conversation with him and, and he really put me on to what was going on with that stuff and so I, I started reading about it and and it, it 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 became apparent to me what was going on and just how big a problem it potentially would be and I moved down to to Australia around that time and I kept I kept reading this stuff and I was talking to a bunch of the guys I worked with down in Australia about this, you know, the subprime problem and how it, it was potentially a huge issue. And you know, quite rightly so, the the attitude down in Australia at the time was, "Oh, mate, you know, she'll be right. It's not. A, this is not a problem for Australia. This is this is a problem for America. It, you know, yeah, very interesting, but this is not not our problem." Um, and you know, I, I, I really, out of fascination, I kept following this stuff, and, and I, you know, I, I would, I would trade the Aussie banks as as if I was trading banks overseas, which, you know, was, was an expensive lesson because Aussie banks don't trade like banks overseas. And, you know, the assumption I made that subprime was a, was a problem for everybody, not just the US, uh, was dramatically wrong for a period of time. And I, and I really struggled with that because it just, I couldn't see how this wasn't a problem for Australian banks and Hong Kong banks and UK banks. I just couldn't understand how it wasn't a problem, but for a period it wasn't. And so I agonized over that. And, and you know, against those those shorts in the financial sector, I couldn't see why uh, people wouldn't want to own precious metals and mining stocks. And obviously Australia, the Australian equity market, for anyone that doesn't know anything about it, is essentially made up of banks and, and resource companies. That's just about it. There are a few other things, but... Um, they're the things people care about. So, you know, I had this, this book that was, that was short banks and was long resource stocks. And, you know, I had some really painful days. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I learned very quickly how to, how to trade around those in such a way that I could position myself so as not to lose money and try and position myself to be right eventually rather than right immediately. And that was, that was a great learning curve for me. Um, and I, and I found myself um, facilitating the hedge fund block desk for, for, for a period of time. And we had a, the, the, 
the, the listing of Qantas. So I had this huge Qantas issue that we were the book runner. And this was happening at a time where the, the market was starting to look incredibly overvalued. And so I, I was very happy putting out big shorts in Qantas to, to the funds that wanted to buy it. Um, and and I, I ran up a very, very big short in Qantas, which just seemed ridiculous to me um, that, that it should be trading at these levels. And every day I'd have more hedge funds come in that wanted to buy this stuff. And every day I would kind of trade around my position, but I'd increase, increase my short. And then kind of 2008 really started, 2007, eight started to kind of pick up steam. And, um, you know, my, my book suddenly started looking very good. Being short the financials and long the resource stocks was great. Being short a massive amount of Qantas was was hugely profitable um, for a time. But when, once the markets picked up steam to the downside, um, something happened, which which really, I have to say, looking back at it now, and this I haven't talked about, just kind of caused me an enormous amount of disenchantment. You know, as, as the world really started to fall apart, um, you know, I had what I believed to be the perfect book. I was, so I was, I was long gold mining stocks, and I was short banking stocks, and, and, and it was working beautifully. But, but when, you're, when you're trading a book down in Australia for um, uh, you know, a global investment bank where the trading is run out of New York, you're very much an afterthought. It's not a big thing for them. It's, they've got bigger fish to fry, which I totally understood. But we had a, an edict come down from on high that you, know, you had to cut your exposure to a certain level, get it within a certain level by close of business. And you know, I spent hours desperately trying to have a conversation with the head traders in New York and just say, guys, look, I know what you're saying. I totally understand it. I understand the, the importance of the risk management they're trying to do, but you need to just take a look at this book because I think you're going to want these positions. They are going to help you um, offset losses elsewhere that you know could be very, very nasty. Um, and they just didn't want to hear. They didn't want to know that I was sure all the things that were going down and along the things that were holding up because to them it was just it was just a, let's just get the books down and and it was such a to me a dereliction of duty to 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 ignore the guy running the book who who really had his finger on that pulse and listened to him for ten minutes and, and assess his position now, at the same time I understand that the pandemonium that was breaking loose for them in in New York and, and elsewhere around the region but I, I just kind of looked at that and thought you know you, you can't just say do this. You have to take the time to assess the positions. And, and you know, if, if they listened to me and said, look, we understand, but I would have felt a lot better about it. And so, so being told to, to chop that book down, um, when it, when it was making great money and as, as, as luck would have it, had they left it, it would have made tremendous money for them. It kind of really disenchanted me. It, it disillusioned me with, with the investment bank, um, side of things it, it disillusioned me with you know centrally managed dealing books that weren't really allowed to be traded locally and, and my boss at my desk at the time was one of my closest friends in the world um you know he and i spent many hours talking about this before during and after uh, and i think it, it it disillusioned him in a way um, as well that the fact that he was kind of outvoted by my people a long way away that really didn't understand the Australian market, didn't understand the dynamics down there. And, and you know, so that, that was really the end of my, um, of my time with investment banks. I, 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 I left in early 2009. 
to move to Singapore um, to help a friend start a business, uh, you know, outside investment banking. And, uh, you know, it was, it was one of those, it was a good idea at the time. And I'm, I'm hellishly glad I did it. You know, the business didn't survive the fallout from 08, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up working my way back into to, to finance through a, a circuitous route. But, um, you know, that's a very long answer to a, a very short question for which I apologize. But when I think of, of, of rough things to go through, that for me, sitting on those positions, which, which were good positions, but having them taken out from under me um, was a very, very painful thing for me to go to. I, you know, I took that very personally. I took it very hard because I've been, you know, I've been sitting up all night trading these positions and, and, and trading them well and, and to have someone just go, no, just chop them. I don't want to know why. I don't know what you're doing. Just get rid of them was, um, was, a, was, a, was a very painful period for me personally. And this doesn't get talked about enough, mate, because I've, you know, I've got uh, a lot of friends that were, um, you know, head of foreign exchange trading desks um, that, you know, that you, you can't underestimate the pressure when it comes to like situations like you just described. When you are up all night, you've literally got, now back in those days, it was pages, mate, wasn't it? Because you didn't have. It's not quite, it wasn't quite that old. I mean, you know, we take this to carry a page. I remember out. that. In fact, I, I can tell you, I've never owned yeah. a pager, so I'm, I obviously missed the great pager bubble. Not even the little Reuters, um, the little Reuters widget thing that they sent no, out to all I the, never had one the of traders. Never had one of those. Really? See, I, 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 wow, I, I wasn't a great you. one for being out on the pistol night every night, so I, I was easy to find. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, now. We all know that's not true. A young man in Tokyo with expendable cash. That, like you said, that's for over a beer. Well, no, but Japan, but Japan was just, Japan was the market. The, all the overnight phone calls would come if you were in London, right? That's when you get the, the phone calls to tell them mm-hmm. what was happening. I mean, the market when we went home, the markets had shut, so we, you know, the, the guys in London were trading a, a dead market. So there may be a story coming out, but there wasn't really anything that that waking us up in Tokyo would achieve. I mean, we we we'd wake up in the morning and they'd hand the books over to us, and then we were live. So I was fortunate that that that, that you know we were the reference, and so. The kind of world worked on our time, which was which was handy. In that market, but when when you were down in Australia, that was much more of a global market. And um, yeah, it's it's very easy for for people that um, have not been in these positions, have not worked in in the markets, to kind of um, throw stones at the ivory tower and say, "Oh, it's all right for you guys. You earn so much money," you know, yada yada yada. And many, for many good reasons, the um, the banking. Um, sector has been dragged through the mud and um, you know especially with what's just been released in the last couple of days with uh, you yeah. know yet more just absolute criminal activity that um, it, it has been going on and being passed through the banks we can get to that later but when it comes down to the individual level um, you know these are generally just family guys sat at their desk trying to make a living, trying to keep food on the table for their kids. You know, that they, they might have fallen into this career, um, like many of us fall into whatever career we fall into. Um, but the pressure, the levels of stress are just so ridiculously high. And, you know, I'm not asking for anybody to, you know, break out the violins, but I've seen, I've seen the effects. And, you know, whether that's, um, you know, uh, like it, it can swing from, you know, depression to alcoholism to drug abuse to, um, you know, marital problems, relationship problems, just pure f- 
fights on the desk in the dealing room. You know, it's all there. Um, and it's just, um, I think it's, I don't know. I, I feel it's, I feel it's kind of underassessed and underappreciated. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, obviously, I've seen all that stuff too, and, and, I, and you know, at no point did I did I take those decisions personally. Um, you know, I knew the guys obviously making the decisions very well, and they were they were great guys and, and, and great traders. I, I knew the pressure they were under, but the, that was my problem. Was I guess the pressure came from above them, from people. Uh, who didn't know what they were talking about? Who were just who were just afraid? And instead of instead of doing the sensible thing and, and talking to the guys who really knew what was going on and and trusting them, um, you know, it was it was it was much higher up the food chain. It just said, "Oh no, no, no we just can't stand this. Just stop it." Um, and you know, I, I, Credit Suisse, I'm sure, lost an awful lot of money closing those books down. That had the guys that. That knew what they were doing, been allowed to, um, to 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 kind of manage this effectively. Who knows? I mean, there's 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 no counterfactual. But I, you know, I, my gut feeling tells me the quality of those guys. They would have done a better job had they been allowed to um, to make the decisions themselves as traders who understood risk, who understood uh, you know the kind of the risk profiles they had and, and where they were exposed to it. Than guys at the top who would look at a printer every day, look at the net exposure and say, oh, no, we need to get this down to X from Y just because I'm not comfortable with it. You know, there were conversations that needed to be had and weren't in terms of a granular level to understand what was happening. Um, but again, look, it was anyone that remembers 2007-8, you know, for, for me, it, it, it just felt long overdue when it happened. But I think by the very nature of it, the people – who were in charge of making the decisions at that high up level above the train floors were completely oblivious to it. So I, I think they were probably way more stressed out than we were uh, at the time because all they saw were, were shocking numbers coming through. They had no real understanding of what was happening, no real grasp of why this was happening. And to them, it was it was their asses on the line. And so they just they just panicked and said, "Just you know, make it stop. Just make this stop." And the only way to really stop it was to take your exposure down crystallize your losses, but at least then you know going forward, okay, well, that's that's it. You know, the, the, the books are shut down there. So you know, I, I, it, there's no part of this I don't understand. Um, I just I just think people were both incentivized and allowed to make decisions that in, in the cold light of day, even at the time, they felt like wrong decisions to me. But who knows, right? They're but for the grace of God. Had I been in that position, been forced to make those decisions, who knows what I would have done? So, you know, I, I don't, I don't take it personally. I don't hold it against anybody. Um, I think if you were, if you were manning any kind of post during that time, um, you were, you were put under an inordinate amount of pressure. The, the problem I have is, is the, is the lack of lessons that many people learn. People who think that um, that 2008 was not as dramatic as it was. Is largely down to the, the kind of um, the reaction of the central banks on what they've done, um, and so to, to to look at a chart of the S and P and say, see, two thousand eight, you, you can barely see it, and look where we are now, we're at all time highs, is to misunderstand the reaction function and the damage that that reaction has sown for that next tragedy that you talked about earlier on, you know, which is which is overdue now. We called it, I think we suspect we got a glimpse of it in March and, and you know, what happened. They, they 
they turned the, um, the fabulous money printing machine up to 11. Um, but that's not ultimately going to solve this problem. This problem is, is, is one that we have to face at some point. And the longer we leave it before we face it, the worse it's going to be. Um, and I just get the feeling that there are things crystallizing now in the world of politics, in the world of you know, you know, some of the societal issues we're seeing and in the markets that will ultimately just overwhelm the ability of central banks and governments to respond. And um, I, you know, I, I fear we're, we're moving towards that, that, that day of reckoning quite, quite quickly now. You and I both, Grant, and um, many of the listeners are going to be screaming, right, let's segue to Bitcoin. Let's segue I can, to I can Bitcoin, hear the Bitcoin but... fixes this crowd. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost like, a, it's like, like the Welsh boys choir chorus. <laughs> but we will, we will leave the dangled carrot. And um, I want to talk about um, Real Vision and um, how that came about because the ethos that was founded on was incredible. And I was lucky enough to have met you right around the time that you were you were on fire with this idea. Um, I remember you and I um, had numerous dinners and, you know, you'd, you'd be like talking about, you know, and this is what we're going to do and it's going to go like this and it's going to go like this and I'm flying over here to meet this guy and then we're going to set it up. Um, you and Raoul had come across each other, I think, you, like reading each other's articles or something and um, like just clicked on so many different um, levels and had this ethos of like the flapping heads on television are doing more damage than than anything. Um, and, you know, let's get on a mission here and really uh, add some value to people, those people that that really are interested in economics or markets or history and and help them on their journey so one a huge thank you from me um because you know real vision became a, a huge learning curve for me and at that point i'd been in financial markets for 15 16 17 years and i think i learned more in the first three interviews than i'd ever learned in my whole career um, do you want to talk about like the early days of, of how this all happened, how you guys dreamt this up, um, how you found each other and, um, just hashed this idea out? The, um, Raoul and I met quite fortuitously, uh, actually serendipitously would probably be a better word for it. Um, and we ended up, uh, I was in Spain and we ended up going for dinner, he and I, and I, and I stayed at his house and we, and we just talked about you know, we both had a similar idea coming at it from different from different angles, um, and we and we sat up until God four or five in the morning on his on his terrace talking about this stuff. And it was it was one of those um, those crazy ideas that you have at that time of the morning when you've drunk too much red wine um, that normally just disappears in, in the hangover the next day. You know, you, you kind of you put the world to rights and you have these great ideas and the next day all you, all you wanted a bacon sandwich and, and a lie down. Um, but this idea just didn't, it, it didn't go away. And, and, you know, it, it kind of, it, it germinated with, with Raoul and I and, and Remy, his, um, uh, the guy that worked with uh, Raoul at, at GMI. And we, we met again in Hong Kong a few months later. They, they came over to see some clients, and I flew up to Hong Kong from Singapore and borrowed a friend's office, and we spent the whole weekend, the three of us, in a tiny office with a whiteboard kind of thrashing this thing out. And, 
you know, I, I think at the end of that weekend, we kind of all stepped back from the whiteboard, looked at it and went, well, you know what? I think we've all had dumber ideas than this, so let's give it a go. Um, and that that really was was it. We just, you know, we, 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 we decided we'd go and do this. We knew nothing about it. I mean, I mean nothing about it. And Raoul's talked about this a lot in many interviews, so I don't want to, to rehash that stuff. But we, we, as I said earlier, we made mistake after mistake after mistake. And, and, and thankfully, our knowledge of the world we were about to step into was so lacking that it was a huge advantage for us as it turned out. Because if we'd known much more, we probably wouldn't have done it um, because it would have seemed too daunting. And, and you know, I don't, I don't like using the word disruptive, but it would have seemed so different to how the world was that we might just not have had the courage to do it. And, and again, knowing so little meant that we could just ask questions and we didn't have any preconceived notions about any of this stuff. And so... Not only could we ask questions about stuff, but we could just try things that people entrenched in, in the media business would have never thought to do, or and, and in fact, in, in some cases, actively counselled us against. So we, you know, we sought advice from people um, as you would do, and then you know, after talking amongst the four of us, uh, Raoul, Remy, Damien, and I, we just kind of said it just doesn't feel right. We're, we're going to try it this way. And so some of those things paid off. Some of them didn't. But, uh, you know, I think I think the biggest, certainly for me anyway, I don't want to talk for the other guys, but for me the biggest realisation was, um, you know, we were told by several people with way more experience than us that, you know, you, you don't want to do anything more than six or seven minutes. And if you've got a niche um, area, then, you know, maybe you'll get 12 minutes out of people. But any more than that, you're just wasting your time. And we, we heard that from you know people we respected and people who really knew their knew their craft, and and it it kind of got us thinking. Well, you know, maybe we, this just doesn't work. Maybe we, this is what we have to do. And um, I'll, I'll never forget. I was I was in Singapore and I was up late. I just uh, had a phone call with someone, and and Raoul had been to interview uh, Mark Hart in Texas, and and Mark was a perfect test case for us because he was brilliantly smart and completely unknown. And that that was really such an important thing to prove. Will people listen to someone I've never heard of just on the premise that Raoul or Grant or whoever says, hey, this guy's smart, you should listen to him? Because if they wouldn't, then what we were going to try and do was going to be a huge struggle. It would mean we could only interview rock stars of the world. But if they would give us a chance and 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 believe that if we thought this guy was worth talking to for an hour, he, he might be, then we had something. And so Raoul went and recorded this interview with Mark, and they sent me in Singapore the kind of the, the first edit of it. Um, and I, I, I opened this thing at, at 2 o'clock in the morning. I just finished a call. I opened the thing. And I'm, I'm a, a photography nerd. I, I love to to take photographs. And so I'm just curious to see how they like these things. I just, I'm just fascinated by it. So I just wanted to look at it and see what it looked like. So I opened this thing and I'm thinking, I'll, I'll, I'll watch this in the morning. I'm going to go to bed now. I just want to have a quick look at the lighting and stuff. So I opened this thing up and the next thing I know it's three o'clock and I've just listened to this thing for an hour and have been utterly captivated by it. Um, and, and, and that to me was, was hugely important. And Raoul did a great job interviewing Mark and Mark was just, you know, off the wall, brilliant. 
And so it was a really engaging thing to look at. And I'm thinking, you know, if I can sit up at two o'clock in the morning when I'm exhausted and, and that hour can fly by, it was an hour and nine minutes long, um, then, then we've got something here. And we, we were originally going to put this thing out as, I think, three 20-odd minute pieces to kind of, as a, as a, as a bow to the people who told us that, that it was too long otherwise. And in the end, I, I, I think Ralph and I were just talking about it before we were going to air the first thing, and, I, and we just kind of thought, yeah, screw it, let's let's put this out. It's good. We 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 both know it's good. It's engaging, and realistically, if people won't watch this for an hour, then they won't watch anything for an hour. And we really do have to think about this. And so we put this up, and it was very very early in, in Ruiz's history. It was it was you know we were weeks into this at that point, and we we put it up, and we just held our breath, and, and we waited. And the response was phenomenal. And people were, I remember some of the comments this day, you know, this, this was better than reading a book. And, you know, why did you have to stop when you did? And, you know, it's that kind of response to it that, that let us know that if, if this stuff is good, then people will want to watch it and they will sit through it. And so that, that for me was a very important moment for the history of Real Vision because it, it cemented in our minds that we were right to, to go down this road and, and try and create conversations that that had had depth and had breadth to them and, and weren't trying to fit into the soundbite. And we had the latitude because it was our platform and it was our project that you know we could run these things as long as we like. We didn't have to fill any schedules or anything. So it was just a case of, okay, well let's let's run with this. And so that that's what we did. We went down that road and you know I'm I'm so delighted that we did because I think uh, you know some of that early stuff we created with some of these interviews with with unknown people uh, who are every bit as brilliant as the as the gunblacks and the basses and the truckers of the world were was was some of our some of our best work. I mean, I think I think it was truly groundbreaking what we were doing back then. That video is still my number one for the hundreds that I've watched for that exact reason that you've just outlined. I remember sitting down, watching this. It would have been the first one I watched. Yeah, it would, sure. have it would have been. It was very, and, early. It was very yeah. early in the piece. And I think um, just because I was, uh, you know, um, you'd pitched the whole idea to me, I was very, very early to sign up and couldn't wait to see how it was turning out. Good man, Princey, thank you. And, but, but that, mate, but honestly, that, that interview, I'm like, who the hell is this guy right and captivated within two minutes just his introduction i mean I, and i had no idea who raul was either like no clue um and here are these two guys with real in-depth market knowledge i don't know perhaps raul was faking it <laughs> but <laughs> um just a little leg pull um but you know I, the, the stuff he was saying and the the manner he was saying it in, like, talk about just Zen personified. He was just like calm, and so like his his vision, his like um, clear headedness, his answers, the way he interacted with everything. It was like, oh my god! And like you, an hour and nine minutes flew past, and I was like, oh my god! Yeah. This is this this is this is this is ridiculous. Like, I, I think I stopped watching Squawk on the Street that day or CNBC or, you know, whatever else had been forced down our necks. Um, 
it was, and there's never have I gone back to that rubbish. Uh, so it was, um, yeah, truly a, a brilliant idea. The long form was the ticket. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly, that's what I've focused on uh, ever since, you know, the, all the stuff I did uh, when I was there, that, that was that was my goal, was to have these long form in-depth conversations with um, with smart people. And I, I, you know, I, didn't, I never really cared what their, what their track record was. I never really cared what their, uh, you, you know, what, what they did. I just wanted people who, who understood what they did and, and were, and were smart about it. Because like I said, at the beginning, there's a chance to learn there. And, you know, the, and the one, the one peeve I had, um, would be to, would be to put a, put a piece up with someone that was, that was, you know, absolutely riveting and, and so valuable in terms of the knowledge that it gave you and have someone in the comments say, well, you know, he's, he's, his funds lost money the last two years. And I, I just, you know, I just think, you know, that that's not, it can't be just about that. I, I get that that's important. Of course I do. I mean, this has been my career for 35 years. I get it's important, but it can't just be about that. You know, if, if that's it, if it's just about the score, then there's no point in listening. You don't need to listen to people who've who've made money and lost money and been successful and failed. You don't need to. It's just about the numbers. So find the guy that had the best result last year and give him all your money. And then if he doesn't do the same again next year, take it from him and give it to the other guy who made the money. It just, but it can't be about that, and, and it never has been for me. And I, you know, I, 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 I took some flack from people for for not getting trade ideas out of every interview I did. Um, but that just wasn't it for me. You know, I, I, I think when you talk to someone, if I talk to someone for an hour, this is always my opinion going into these conversations. If I talk to you for an hour uh, and we spend 50 minutes talking about your, your life and your career and, and the mistakes you've made, the lessons you've learned and the success you've had, um, that's all knowledge. That's all stuff that you've lived and you can, you can evaluate, you can talk about it, and, and it's it's stuff you can pass on. If we spend the last 10 minutes talking about what you think the dollar's going to do or where you think Hong Kong equities are going to trade, great, it's it's informed by your experience, but let's be honest, it's a guess about the future, right? I mean, all these things, every single trade idea is a guess about the future, uh, and that's fine. I mean, we're all trying to do that, and we're all trying to make the most educated guess we can but for me, the value that I can give to people is by helping you make better educated guesses by, by learning from other people and not what they think, but how they think. Because, you know, if, if, if I spend an hour talking to Jeff Gundlach about how he thinks about structuring trades or how he thinks about the bond market or how he thinks about the Federal Reserve Reaction Function, then you can take that, you can apply that to the stuff you already know, and you can make better educated decisions. But if I ask Jeff Gundek, so where do you think the 10 years is going to be next year? Yeah, he might be absolutely right. And 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 in many cases he has been. But look, he's he's guessing. I hate to I hate to peel the veil back, but he's guessing. Um, and his guesses in the bond market are oftentimes way better than anybody else's. But it's still a guess about the future. Um, which is another reason why holding people's feet to the fire when they get something wrong, you know, people are desperate to hear what so-and-so thinks, uh, you know, the gold price is going to do. And then when it doesn't do that, 
they they you know they get in their face and say, well, you, you know, you got it wrong. Well, there's no reason to assume that we're going to get it right. No, it's a guess. So I you know I've I've always stayed clear of that. Um, you know I can make my own trade decisions. I can make my own uh, guesses about the future. What I want to do is make smarter guesses about the future, and for that, I want to learn from from people smarter than me about about how they do it. Uh, not about what they do, but about how they do it. Because I, I just think the the amount of value in that is is unlimited, and the amount of value in uh, you know a, 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 a guess on what the S and P is going to be next week has, by definition, a finite time value, and I I don't want that. I want I want information that has as infinite a time value as, as you can put on it for me because I, I just think that in the long term it's gonna it's gonna be much more useful to me. Yeah, for sure. And I remember um, I remember one of your I don't know whether it was an email you sent out to every subscriber at the time about um, you know negative comments in the comment box and um, or whether you replied directly in, in one of the comments um, outlining your feelings about that. And, uh, you know, everything that you said was echoing around my brain. It's like, yeah, like why? It's like, welcome to the internet, I suppose, right? Yeah, no, no, there's a lot of that. Have got- I mean, it wouldn't have been email. I would never send an email about that. But I'm sure I would have replied to some comments. But more more from the mm. fact that, um, you know, if these guys come on to Real Vision and they give me an hour of their time, and they open their hearts and their minds and they share that with us. Uh, if you're in the comments sector and you're, you say, oh, this guy's a loser, you know, he's fund lost money last year, what are you doing, right? Because you're more than likely going to dissuade these people from doing it again. I mean, who wants, to, who wants to go and do that and then be hauled over the coals for it? I mean, it's, it's ludicrous, frankly, to me. The whole thing is absolutely ridiculous that you would do that, um, you know, if you've never lost money in a trade in your life and you've never had a down year, then that's great. Maybe you've, you, you, you've justified and throw those brickbats, but what are you doing watching Real Vision? You don't need us. You, you, you're flawless. So I, you know, I, 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 dis, I find that distasteful. I find it, I find it rude, um, and, I, and I don't like people being rude. I just don't think there's any need for it. Um, and I stay out of all the Twitter arguments. I just, it's, just, I, it's just wasted energy for me. But I, but I just think if someone gives you the great courtesy of their time, which, you know, as my friend Tony Deedon said, is the only uh, resource that we have that that is finite and we can't replenish it, we can't uh, do anything with it once it's gone, then the least you can do if it's not for you is just keep quiet. Just go away, put it down to experience, decide you didn't learn something, but you don't need to get in people's face to say, hey, you know what, I thought that was rubbish. Fine. It's okay, but no one, no one guaranteed you that it was going to be exactly what you wanted going into it. So just have a little courtesy, have a little decency, and uh, you know appreciate what what people are doing and giving up their time because it, it, the world would be much worse if you scare them all away and they just don't want to do it anymore. Precisely, and um, I'd want to say right now, thank you for your time for coming on and um, and sharing all of these experiences. Um, it's uh, it's a great honor, and uh, really, um, I'm sure the listeners will reach out and thank you. Um, Prince is anything but many of them. I'm, out I'm, there. I'm just delighted to have someone to talk to these days. So thank you for uh, thank you <laughs> for right. not leaving me alone with the voices in my head for a change. Now you've been 
conspicuous in your absence from from Real Vision. Um, it's been a big miss for me personally. It was a big miss when you guys shut down the podcast or you changed it to um, to the different presenters. Um, so, I mean, is there any chance of uh, of hearing Grant or seeing Grant back on um, back on the videos, or is uh, is this something that um, you know Sorry, you've done you, from? You froze on me there. You said, "Is there any chance?" And then you froze, and I didn't hear the rest. I'm not trying to avoid the question. I, I probably can guess where it was going, but I, 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 you literally froze it just as you asked it. <laughs> no problem. Is there any chance that we will see you um, back on the uh, on the interview circuit with Real Vision, or um, you know, uh, rekindling a podcast or something for them, or is this uh, like a project that you've moved on from and uh, you're chasing uh, the, the next big thing? Oh no, I, I don't think anything is chasing the next big thing. I mean, uh, you know, for me, um, it, it felt like I'd reached the end of my journey with Real Vision. I love doing the podcast. I love doing the interviews. Um, but it, you know, I, I, I think I think Real Vision's moved on um, from from the stuff I wanted to do, and 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 I think I've moved on. And, and so you know, for me, it just felt like a natural end to that to that kind of part of, of, of my life and you know I, I did a I did a I did an interview for for Real Vision at the at the recent Festival of Learning I, I was and they asked me if I'd interview Michael Lewis for them and of course I jumped on the chance I, you know it was it was great fun I, I love I love doing it um so you know I would, I would never say never it's certainly not I'm never going to go and do that again but um you know I, I think I think they're going in a direction that um that that you know I probably don't fit with it to be honest with you Princey um I, I don't think the stuff that I like doing and 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 that is is valuable to me necessarily fits uh, fits anymore. And, you know, and I've, I've sat back and watched and admired all, all the stuff they're doing. And I mean, you're around the guys are doing some great stuff, and Damien's doing some amazing things with Creative Studios. And I wish them all the success in the world. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still a shareholder. I, you know, I'll always be a co-founder. But um, but you know, as I said, I, it just it just felt to me like. Um, like my my part of that of that story had, had reached its natural end, and so um, you know it, it was uh, it was it was the right time. Yeah, and that brings us on to um, your current podcast, which I know a lot of uh, the listeners are listening to, The End Game, which is brilliant. Um, you know, yes, we are Bitcoiners, and we there's probably many a time where we're listening to an episode and we're shouting at you and Flick saying, the end game is Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, you, you seem, um, I don't know, have, and again, to come to come full circle on this and the start of Real Vision and another moment in time where you and I are sitting down having a beer and I said something along the lines of you. I was still in foreign exchange at this point, and I said to you, "Oh man, we'd been talking a, a lot about how the markets were a complete nonsense since 2008." Um, and then I said something along the lines of, "Well, what about this Bitcoin thing? What a crock of shit! Can you believe that you know somebody's got like the you know temerity to just like make up a, a currency? You know, they, they call it like a, a good foreign exchange gun. trader." <laughs> Exactly. I was pumping my own bags. You know, there I was. I was a foreign exchange. I was a, a broker. And, you know, I had lived dollars and yen and won and Hong You know, Kong they're all made up currencies too, right? I do now. Okay. This is the thing. I didn't then. And um, it was your immortal words that you said to me, Princey, just you wait. 
we've got some interviews coming up on Real Vision I think is going to blow your mind. And I sat there for about a week or so until they dropped. And I I do remember uh, there was um, Wences, uh, Cesares, and Turmista, Trace Mayer. Um, They were the three that I remember clearly, and there would have been a few others. Well, Dan Moorhead was into interviewing. Yeah, um, Demo was a bit later. Wences. We didn't get Dan on for a while. Um, but no, but he interviewed, uh, Wences. Yes. Well, the one I, yes, back in 2015, November, 2015. Uh, and now like you're thinking, wow, like you, that, that probably set Dan on the path himself. Right. Yeah. Um, mate, like Matt, if it was not for those videos and real vision, I would never have started stacking sats. And I would not be sitting here having this conversation with you. Um, so, you know, the, the obvious question is, you know, how did you fall down the rabbit hole yourself? Did you, um, you know, uh, start your journey into Bitcoin? Is it something that you've... All right, Princey, let's do this. Let's do looking this. At? <laughs> uh, okay. Listen, first of all, please apologize to Claire on my behalf for sending you down that rabbit hole because <laughs> I, I can only imagine <laughs> what that poor woman has gone through. And she's way nicer yes. than you. I'm only friends with you because she's so nice. <laughs> um, yeah, look, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to me. Bitcoin uh, is is something that I get asked about. And, even, and when you, you emailed me and, and kindly invited me to come do this, my first response to you was, what the hell do you want to talk to me for? Uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not any kind of authority on Bitcoin. And, and, I, but I still get asked about it all the time. Um, so, you know, for, for the record, since it's you, let, let, let's have a discussion. Now, for me... I, I'm always very aware of what I don't know, and and Bitcoin falls into that category. And and the one thing that kind of disappoints me is that people um, are so hard into one camp or the other. Either Bitcoin fixes everything, and Bitcoin is the only solution, and Bitcoin is the savior of the world, or Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme. And you know, to me, I, I try and be circumspect about these things, particularly things that I know I don't know about. Uh, and, and Bitcoin is one of those. And, and my view from the beginning was this is something that needs to be looked at and needs to have attention paid to it. There's no doubt about that. It's not just um, a Ponzi scheme. It, you know, maybe it is at the time I'm thinking, but I don't know that, so I'm not going to write it off as that until I understand it. Um and, and maybe it is the savior of the world and, and, you know, it's digital gold and it wipes everything out. But I doubt that too. But I don't know that, so I'm not going to write it off. And that's really the attitude I've had the whole way through this. Uh, alongside that, I also came to realize pretty quickly that you kind of, and you're living proof of this, you, 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 you either decide to go full cryptard or you don't, right? And if you don't go full cryptard, um, you are at a massive disadvantage to people who do because the technology changes so fast that unless you decide I'm going to devote an inordinate amount of my time to understanding this and staying current with it and, and, and really, really digging into it, you're just outgunned and outmanned. There's just no point in, in being half into Bitcoin. Um, you know, I've, I've watched friends of mine who I have tremendous respect for who I, you know, I know the brain power they're working with, and I've watched them go full crypto. And so 
to me, when I look at those guys and go, you know, if these guys have gone, if, if Mark Yusko is bought into this, then there's something to it. Um, and so, you know, I, I would never assume that guys who, you know, I consider to be way smarter than I'll ever be, if they're telling me this is the real deal, I'm never going to go, ah, you're full of crap. It's, it's nonsense. So, so for me, it's absolutely been something that, you know, I, I, I'll own a few. I, I bought some early on and I sold them and, and, you know, I'll own a few more and, you know, I have a small amount now, but it, but it's not a big position for me because I don't understand it. Um, I wouldn't have none because I just think that would be, that would be a foolish thing to not have any simply because of the optionality involved in this thing. But I don't ever pretend to know enough about it to be able to weigh in on it, which is why you know, I, I rarely opine on it because I just, I'm just not qualified. I'm, I'm fascinated as to why people want my view on it because you know I've, I've been pretty consistent with the fact that I, I, I haven't gone fully down that rabbit hole. And so why don't you listen to people who have? But then I understand that once you go down that rabbit hole, you become a zealot. I mean, it's hard not to. Uh, and and I, I really struggle to think of anybody at the top of my head who who occupies that that middle ground. And and you know the experience I've had. Um, with precious metals is, has been very instructive to me. And I, you know, I, I, I came to gold probably in the very early 2000s. And to me, uh, gold, like Bitcoin, to, to many people who, who, who are savvy about cryptocurrencies, was an elegant solution to a set of problems that they recognized. And that's very much what gold was to me. Um, you know, I've never bothered, I've never traded gold until I think 2001. Probably I'd never you know, looked at the gold price, but it, it kind of sent various signals to me, but I didn't really understand it. And so I went down that rabbit hole, so I know what it's like. But very early on in that that journey for me, I realized that there are two ways that you can talk about precious metals to people. Um, and what a lot of people choose to do is, is, is put the sandwich board on, stand in the street and scream the end is nigh to anyone walking past and thump the Bible. And we all know what happens when you see those guys in the street, you cross the road to avoid them. So to me, it was a, it was a pointless way of going about it. So you know, I always tried when I talked about it or I gave my presentations about it, I never tried to really persuade people of anything. I really tried to talk about how I saw it um, and then let them make their own mind up. Uh, you know, I wasn't trying to, trying to be a missionary. I wasn't trying to convert people. People asked me my opinion. I tried to uh, elaborate on that opinion as, as lucidly and as effectively as I could and, and try and be an effective communicator for an idea. But it really was never of any importance to me whether people believe me, decided to look into it more or not. I was that this is what I believe, this is the message. Have fun with it or ignore it. It's entirely up to you. And what I found with Bitcoin is people get so wedded to their belief on either side. And I think that's just such a such a, a waste of an opportunity to learn. And you know, time will tell. We don't know what, what Bitcoin is yet. We really don't. And, and the evangelists can't say that they do. And the naysayers can't say that they do. They're, they're, the game is still in, in progress. So the, the one thing that's missing for me in, in terms of trying to evaluate Bitcoin and, and, and what it is and what it can be, uh, I'm talking about Bitcoin now, not the blockchain, is I want to see what it does in a crisis. I want to. See, I know what gold will do in a crisis. I know what gold does in in inflationary environments. I know what it does in deflation. I know what it does in stagflation. I know what it does in market shocks. 
I know what it does in wars. I know all of this stuff. And I have a lot of historical roadmaps that will help me try and figure out how it's going to react under any number of given conditions. I don't have that with Bitcoin. I just don't. You know, it, it was, it was, it was uh, the white paper was written in 2009, so post the 08 crisis, which is really the last crisis we've had. So it hasn't seen anything but, you know, taper tantrum, I guess you could, you could talk about that. You, I guess the, the EU uh, debt crisis, but it wasn't really on many people's radar at the time. So it didn't have a wide enough uptake to give us a sense of how people will treat it in a crisis. And that's one thing that I really want to see from Bitcoin. You know, we, we saw it in the pandemic. Um, we saw it collapse pretty hard. Uh, to my mind, there was no doubt that it was a bubble in 2017 at the end there. I, I, I wrote about that. I wrote a piece. In fact, I think the only piece I've ever written on, on Bitcoin, which was called um, Love in the Time of Tulips. And I wrote that in January. I was writing it in December saying that this is a bubble and it almost burst before I got a chance to publish that. Um, but look, things can, gold was in a bubble in 1980, right? I mean, it doesn't mean it has to go away. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I want to see how, how Bitcoin performs under circumstances. And, and whilst I'm, I'm very happy to own Bitcoin, I'm not confident enough to put the kind of levels of my portfolio into Bitcoin that, that, that you guys are. I mean, I, I just don't have that confidence. And that's, that's not me saying you're wrong. It's me saying, I'm just not there yet. Good luck to you. Um, but I'm just not, I don't have that amount of confidence that you do yet. So, you know, I, I try and pay attention to it, but I know that I don't have the bandwidth to do it properly. And if I'm not going to do it properly, then I'm, I'm going to be a lot more circumspect about it. You know, so, so that in broad strokes is, is my opinion on Bitcoin. Um, I'm sure there are, there are people listening to this now that go, Jesus, we had to sit through tales of him in the 1985 to get to that. What the hell are you doing to us, Princey? And for that, I apologize. But I will say, uh, Princey basically badgered me to do this. So blame him, not me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Grant. Um, yeah. I, I, I know exactly everything you're saying because I've been through everything that um like that that whole that that whole turnaround in my head as well um and i'm not going to bash the bible but that there's been But you're going to put the sandwich board on aren't you? You're going to put the sandwich board like i can see it. No, i can see you slipping over your shoulders. No. There, there's there's been a few things there's been a few things that have come up in this conversation and knowing you as i do um not deeply um but you know we we've obviously um spent time together in the past you love studying history you love financial markets you've you've come to the um uh decision that time is a, a very um it's their only asset basically uh you love looking at inflation versus deflation um what i'm going to say is when you do pick up that that first book whatever it is or second or third or fourth book you're going to fall in love with it and um I want to be the first podcaster Prince, you're doing to, to it. You're have you back it. on the listen, show. Listen, you're doing it. You're doing it. Now stop it. Stop it, All right. Get a hold of yourself. Read the, bit, read the Bitcoin standard. That's no, I, I know. I, listen, I have a copy of that by Mr. Amus. It's, it's knocking around somewhere in my pile of books to read. Um, and, I, and I will read it. And, uh, and it may well be 
that, uh, that I do go, oh, man, why didn't I do this years ago? But, you know, when, when I look at, when I look at um, you know, what a sad life you've got now, spent down that rabbit hole, mate. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I don't know if I want to go down there. I don't know if I want to look at you up in your attic talking to me, for God's sake. God knows what time it is in France. <laughs> And there's nothing I'd rather be doing, Grant. No, 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 no. I mean, all. in all seriousness, no. I, I, I absolutely, you know, it's something that, as I said, I know I have to be able to commit the time to understand it properly, right? And so for me, I, I don't own zero Bitcoin because it, it, that, that doesn't make sense to me. But I, I know that I have so many other things that I'm interested in and fascinated with and and I'm, I'm trying to figure out that if I throw Bitcoin into that mix, I don't, I don't know what happens. And and to me, it's never, it's, you know, people say, oh, you're an idiot, you could be rich buying Bitcoin. That may be the case, but it, it, you know, nothing has ever for me been about the money. It's about the puzzle and it's about figuring out how it all works and how it all comes together. You know, the, the, you and I have had this conversation over a burger. It, it, the money takes care of itself, right? If you figure these things out, the money takes care of itself. And all the people that fixate on the money, many of them are are doomed to fail because it it it, it can't be about the money. If it, if it is just about that, um, then I think you're missing the trick. So, you know, Bitcoin is something that when I have more time, I will I will absolutely try and, and educate myself more on it. And 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 you know, and until then I will try as hard as I can to stay out of the fray because I, I, you know, I don't know that I add an awful lot to it other than the perspective of someone who has my perspective. And, and, you know, that's as someone once said, give me that and a dollar and I can buy a cup of coffee. So I, you know, like I said, I, I, I'm, I'm consistent in my views, if nothing else, Princey, and I'm honest about them (laughs) and I'm honest about my, um, my level of understanding. And I guess that's worth something. I just, I just don't know what. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's great. And the last thing I will say is, um, yes, there are many people that come in um, in the beginning, like I did, for like uh, the speculative reasons and um, number go up technology, as people now call it. Um, when you stick around longer, you realize there's a there's like a fundamental mind shift. And it, it, I'm not here for the money. I'm here for the societal change that that could be brought about by um, people on the street that get a chance to be exposed to a financial asset way before Wall Street, way before a hedge fund, way before a sovereign wealth, a wealth fund, way before a pension fund um, that could really make, you know, um, a difference to their lives in five to ten years' time. And but this that, is, but doesn't this that make it about the that. money, though? Doesn't that make it about the money? You know, I mean, we're talking now <laughs> the, about, about getting – getting along something before the buyers come in. I mean, that, that ultimately makes it about the money. I mean, I, 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 I get the point you're making, um, but that has been the narrative, unfortunately, around Bitcoin. It, you know, it, it's, it's what I found from, from outside is that the narrative around it in the mainstream is very much about the price. It's about making money. When I sit and talk to, to guys like you, um, to you know, buddies of mine like Adam Newman, to, to Mark Yusko, those guys are talking a completely different language to the mainstream. The mainstream coverage of it is absolutely about the price and about how rich you can get from making it. And I think that's that does an mm-hmm. incredible disservice to exactly the type of people you're talking about this thing trying to help. 
because what happens is they do end up with stars in their eyes. They do end up buying this thing at 19,000 and they do end up selling it back at three because they're disillusioned with the whole thing. And so, you know, I, 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 more than anything else, I assiduously try and stay out of that game. Um, because I think if you, if you, if you're lucky enough to find the thinkers about cryptocurrencies, um, then, then you've got a chance. I think if you you happen across some spruker uh, on a website or on a on you know a, a, a TV show or whatever talking about how Bitcoin's going to make you rich, then you know I I, I feel bad because yes, there's a chance you might get rich, but in my experience, um, and maybe I'm just a, a grizzled grandfather now, but in my experience, generally speaking. Um, it's those people who tend to to get carried out on the shields of these things, unfortunately. Absolutely, 100% correct. And that is the biggest worry within the Bitcoin space. The, the coverage by the mainstream media and the way that they dress it up to this is a quick, uh, get quick rich scheme. Um, either it's a Ponzi, get in now, uh, the price is going up. You watch, Grant, we all know this happens, right? Uh, if if the Bitcoin price spikes to twelve or thirteen thousand, we know it's volatile, and that could happen. That's going to hit the news on, you know, that th- that will hit the ten o'clock yeah. news on like Look East or something in the UK, and it will be like a thirty segment, thirty second segment, and you, we've seen the flapping heads. We know exactly what they'd say, and that is going to put that little narrative into. So many of these people, they're going to be like, yeah, let's go out, got to get me some of this whatever money. Um, and then they're going to go and the next stage is they'll try and figure out, well, how do I buy it? What's this app? Oh, that looks okay. And then you get to the app and then it's like, well, what's the Bitcoin thing? Because now I've got Bitcoin Cash, I've got Ripple, I've got Tron, I've got EOS, I've got all of this other dross. Um, and that's going to happen again this cycle. It happened in 2017. It's going to happen again this cycle because that is driven by the greed, which we were talking about earlier, and by the mainstream media and the flapping heads. All of a sudden, Jim Cramer will be um, talking about you got to buy Bitcoin and smashing hammers all over the place. Um, that doesn't help anybody. What we do have in our favor now in 2020 is the, the, the quality of some of the articles that are being written and released, and the quality of some of the books that are being written and released, and the quality of some of the podcasts, far better than mine, are, um, are, are way, way, way ahead of where we were in, in 2017. And um, it's just my hope that long-form conversations like this um, with people like yourself and your views are 100% valid because of you know what you've seen throughout your career – that people can come and listen and take away what they want to take away. And if they want to go and read some of the books and the articles, it's all out there now. It's down to them. It's down to go educate yourself. Don't be told by some flapping head in a 30-second news segment of, you know, what the next hot thing is. Yeah, I think what you said there is actually important when you talked about get-rich-quick schemes. You know, I mean, I've mankind has always been in a rush to do that, right? There's, there's this. I'm a big fan of get rich slow schemes. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of those, and and there just aren't enough of them. But if you if you offer someone the chance of a get rich slow scheme, uh, or a get rich quick scheme that has 
a 50% chance of failure, most of them will take the get rich quick scheme, right? It's just, it's just, it's just who we are. I mean, if you think about the progress mankind has made, 95% of it is down to us trying to be lazy and trying to find a way of doing something that requires less work from us, right? All of it. So, you know, Bitcoin comes along and it, and it, it is the perfect vehicle to tap into that psyche, right? The get rich quick psyche. Now, I remember um, years ago reading an article that Richard Russell wrote. Uh, Richard, you know, sadly died two years ago, um, called Rich Man Poor Man, and it and it it was all about the power of compounding. And it, you know, in that in that article, it, there was a, a set of compounding tables in there, and your know, compound interest for for very good reason is is known as the ninth wonder of the world. And it really is. And if you look at the, if you read that story, and I would urge the listeners to to, to Google this. It's Rich Man Poor Man is written by Richard Russell. It's it's up there in PDF form in all kinds of places. You'll definitely find it. And I, you know, I showed those compounding tables to my kids, and and I've emailed them to many many of my friends that, that have had kids and, and have kids who are you know starting to go to work. And and that that lesson of compounding, the value of compounding, is is an incredibly powerful one. You know, but now, of course, you can't compound because interest rates are zero. And so that, that, that the, the, the archetypal get-rich-slow scheme um, has been taken away. And, and it has pushed people out the risk curve. And, and again, that plays into, into Bitcoin's hands. And as I said, everything I've seen from, from people who I know and who I respect who are far smarter than me suggest that there really is something here and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not about to take my limited knowledge and say they're talking nonsense. You know, we, we, Bitcoin was brought up in my podcast with, with Fleck and Ed Chancellor last week and, you know, they're both, oh, this thing's a Ponzi, it's a waste of time, it's not worth anything, it's another tulip bubble. And, and you know, and what I said to them was, like, well, I've got a different view on Bitcoin but that's a conversation for another day because there's, there's no point in watching two people shout, Ponzi, not a Ponzi, Ponzi, not a Ponzi for five minutes. So what's the point, right? I mean, it's they they know nothing about it. And I'm sure they would both admit that. Um, and I know slightly more, but relative to how much I would need to know to opine on it, nothing. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I think you, your point is right. People need to educate themselves. They need to understand it and then decide for themselves whether it's something that they – they most importantly can understand because if you're investing anything you don't understand, um, then you're just trying to chase the money, and 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 that's fine. But you, you have to understand what can happen if you if you're investing in an asset that you don't understand, you could lose all of it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't don't buy things you don't understand. Don't buy um, shares in companies that are digging tunnels in Las Vegas and, and promising to go to Mars. Uh, don't buy promises because if you want to buy promises, there are plenty of people out there who will make them to you to take your money. Um, buy something you understand. And, um, you know, I, I, that's, that's always been my philosophy. And, and I, you know, I haven't changed it because of Bitcoin yet. I'll throw that out there for you, Princey. Yeah. I'll end it with the word yet. No, that's nice. Yet. And, um, yeah, I, I still, um, yeah, it's, it comes back to, it all comes back to education. And yeah, again, it was a Real Vision interview again with Mark Hart that completely unlocked me on the potential when he turned around 
it was an interview he was doing with Worth um, where like they were talking about it's the world's first undilutable asset. And with what's been going on with the Fed, who many could argue, you know, like uh, the fiat is, what well, all fiat is a Ponzi scheme as well, that um, there's something there. It's real. Um, it's making a big difference in in people in uh, in many, many different ways, many different aspects of their lives. Um, there's lots of podcasts uh, focused on how it's fundamentally changing people's behavior for the better, which uh, is really, truly tangible and amazing to to feel and see and listen to. No, for sure. So, um, for sure. But, look, but look, again, you know, mankind, right? You, 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 you create the world's only undilutable asset, and then a bunch of other men go out and find a way to dilute it by coming up with all these other coins, right? Which ultimately is diluting. If there was only one cryptocurrency, then everyone would be in Bitcoin. But but man has a way of finding a way to to dilute the world's only undilutable assets. That's just what we do. We screw everything up. It's just it's just the way it works. <laughs> that is correct. If if none of that other crap had have happened, um, which is necessary in its own right, um, goodness knows uh, you know how much wasted time and effort and energy a lot of smart people have are putting into those other projects and and basically dressing up as the next best thing um and again i know grant you're giving me that look i sound like an evangelist so we will move on and i'll ask you one last thing um which is a lot closer to you and um analyzing equities and stock markets and whatever else but still a huge bridge to bitcoin and the news of uh michael saylor and and the move at micro strategy um first publicly listed company uh that have come out and uh you know talked about well had to yeah. um you know because of their uh, earnings talk about investing into bitcoin and not just a little bit like uh a huge yeah, half a billion dollars um, I think, last time i saw <laughs> right yes yeah 425 million yeah. which is like uh, the equivalent to 32 and an, Thirty-two and a half thousand, or thirty-eight and a half thousand Bitcoin. I'm not sure. Something like 0.19 percent of you know the amount that's available in the market right now. Massive play, and what? What? How is that kind of echoing through the people you talk to about um, equities and the big picture and the end game? Um, you know, people such as Fleck and Ben and um, uh, Stephanie. What, what's been kind of the, the narrative there? Well, no, do, I, do first feel... of all, I, I don't think they care, frankly. I don't think they care. I, I don't know. I, I, I would think they're smart enough to be aware of it, but I don't think they probably care about it, and, and that's absolutely fine. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a big move. There's no doubt about it. It was, it was an extraordinary thing to read. Um, but, again, you know, you, you get back to this, to this zealotry on both sides. Uh, and Michael Saylor is now appearing on every Bitcoin podcast because he is, he's the poster child for Bitcoin. Now he, he's the validation that a lot of people have been looking for, which is great. Right. Um, but again, we have, we have to talk about this time component because he did this a couple of weeks ago. That's not the time. You know, I guarantee you there was some guy who bought a thousand tulips Right, the day before the bubble burst, 
I guarantee it. And, and again, before anyone jumps at me, I'm not saying that's the case, but I'm just making the parallel here. What he's done is is newsworthy. It's it's a bold, brave move. And it may turn out to be an absolute masterstroke that defines not just him and his company, but the future of cryptocurrencies. I can absolutely see how that can happen. But you have to look at the other side. Like Charlie Munger says, always invert, right? Always invert. What if he's wrong? What if all the things that the naysayers, what if the government makes Bitcoin illegal? What if the government comes out and says, right, we're going to make only Bitcoin illegal? What does Michael Saylor do then? Um, because it's not, this is not some Bitcoin he owns in a cold storage wallet on the dark web, right? This is, he's public, so he would now be in a very sticky situation. And so I think what he's done is extraordinary. I think it's an incredibly brave thing to do. I think it it is transformational. There's no doubt about that because he has now made this part of a much broader conversation and a very important conversation for, for uh, corporate treasurers to have. But it's a couple of weeks old, this decision, and it's too soon to say this changes everything because we don't know that. We just don't know that yet. So, you know, any, anyone that is is taking this as uh, the beginning of end, an end of a part of this story and is adjusting their viewpoint accordingly is too soon. And anyone who's saying he's an idiot for doing this is too soon. So for me, you know, I, I, I know what he's done. I, I, I absolutely understand the magnitude of his decision, but I'm not ready to call it one way or the other yet. And, 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 and I think people on both sides of this argument, and, and I think my experience in the precious metals market has given me this, this perspective, um, and I've, I've earned that perspective the hard way over the last 20 odd years, so I understand it. But I'm just not ready to say that that, 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 that Michael Saylor's move changes everything yet. I, I just think it's too soon. Um, and, and like I said, if, if Bitcoin is outlawed tomorrow, then Michael Saylor is in real trouble. Uh, and that's not to say it will be, but when you, when you think about what he's done and you look at weaknesses and what he's done, that is an obvious one. That could happen with a stroke of a pen. So, look, it's, it's a big deal. It's newsworthy. Um, but let's see. I, I think it's too soon to, to decide really what it means. And I, and, I, and I try and take that attitude through everything. Very, very balanced, mate. Very balanced. And, um, I mean, we, we've got to talk about gold now because um, what's, uh, the, the, you know, what you've done in your career and uh, with uh, your newsletter, TTMYGH, and the educational pieces you've put out there. I remember very well, like the kind of uh, documentary film that you did for Real Vision about gold um, was was brilliant. Uh, again, another educational piece. I mean, you start off talking about the elemental compounds and like the, the whole history of it um, was brilliant. And, you know, visiting and interviewing so many different people and, and the vaults in Switzerland uh, you know, thanks again for, for that educational piece that, that you did. Um, what, are, what are your feelings now about, um, obviously we're at very high times for the price. Um, do, is there anything that you, you'd like to get off your chest about what's happened in the last six to nine months with the I gold market? <laughs> uh, look, 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 here's why gold's different to Bitcoin. Everybody should own gold. 
printing. Everybody should own gold. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, look, I, 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 you talked about the high price of gold there, and that's the part of the gold debate that I just stay out of. When I, when I do presentations on precious metals, and I've done plenty of them over the years, um, I just avoid talking about the price because I don't own gold because of what the price to go up. It's, it's not why I own it. And, and, I, and I, I, I just can't look at it that way because I think if you, if you reduce gold to the price, and, and you know, anyone that's listened to this and is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, a Bitcoin bull, in their head they're already taking the word gold out and putting Bitcoin in. And that's absolutely fine because there are parallels between them. Um, but, but for me, and I come back to that point I made about I, I know what gold does in various scenarios. You know, the reason I own gold um, and have been buying gold for, for 20 years is, is just watching what central banks do. And, you know, I, I, the one thing I have come to realize is you can absolutely, in just about any conversation you have, replace gold with the word Bitcoin. And, and the, the, the reasons remain very similar, if not identical. But I keep coming back to that, that time component. You know, I, I have 6,000 years of, of history on gold that, I, that's, that, that gives me confidence that I know what it's going to do. Um, you know, I, I've, I've made very few big calls on gold because it, it was never really about necessarily timing for me. I, I just wanted to accumulate it and, and hold uh, a larger portion of my savings in that asset. Um, the two calls I made, one was in December 2015 when I said I think that we've kind of reached the end of this bear market and, and it's time for gold to start going up and I think the gold miners are going to break out. Um, and if you look back at the chart, you'll see that purely by luck, I got my timing absolutely spot on with that and, and they did go on an extraordinary run. And then last, um, in the fall of 2019, uh, again, I said, okay, this is, the, the setup is there for, for gold and the mining shares to now do something um, extraordinary. And, and I, I believed that at the time. Obviously, uh, the pandemic came along and, it, and it, 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 it did what it did. But but I still believe that we are now moving into the period where the debasement of fiat currencies starts to get um, just out of control. Uh, and everything I've seen suggests that there is there is no alternative now other than to actively debase the currency, that the Fed has no choice, the ECB has no choice, Bank of China has no choice, the Bank of England are, are out now talking about serious negative rates. Th that, to me, is is what the end game looks like, um, is that. And, and to me, the end game is the end of the fiat currency monetary system. And, and I did a presentation back in 2018, I think it was, called Cry Wolf, which talked about this. And, and I... I, I I did it and I wanted to talk about the gold standard simply because like Bitcoin, like gold, the gold standard itself is something that people either say, it'll never happen again, it's a waste of time, or we should go back to it tomorrow. And, and as always, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And, and the, the point of the presentation I gave, and if you, if you search Cry Wolf on the internet, you'll, you'll find it, it's up there in various places, um, was to get people to think about the gold standard. And the point I was making in the, in the presentation was that when you talk about the gold standard as a decision that gets made, you're, you're looking at it all wrong. We, nobody chooses to go back to a gold standard because the people who choose those decisions are tend to be politicians. And the, the, the gold standard is the politician's worst nightmare. 
So if you think about it in terms of, oh, we're not going to go back on the gold standard, you're right, we're never going to choose to go back on the gold standard. What happens is you get forced back onto a gold standard because currency becomes worthless. And I, and I won't call it money because gold is money. Um, and at that point, you have to go back on a gold standard because fiat currency needs tethering. It needs an anchor of some sort. It needs to have a value to it. Uh, and gold provides that. So you know, ultimately, I do think the world ends up back on a gold standard temporarily in order to stabilize things. I don't know what that gold standard looks like. Um, but at, at some point, the world needs an anchor to the monetary system. Now, again, you could argue that Bitcoin could be that anchor. I would push back and say Bitcoin doesn't have the history. It doesn't have the universal acceptance that gold does everywhere around the world. It's, and its time is not right yet. When, so I think when the next systemic reset comes, and I, and I honestly believe we're moving towards that now, it'll be too soon for Bitcoin. The one after that, maybe. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. These things normally reset every sort of 50 years. Um, I don't think that, and I think it won't happen with Bitcoin this time around. I think it'll happen with gold. Um, and that's when all the talk about what, what's the gold price going to do, what's the gold price going to do, it, it will necessarily be set much higher because it will have to be. But I, I don't care whether gold's 10,000 or whether gold's 1,000. I, I care what that ounce of gold can buy me. And, and through history, it's it's maintained its purchasing power remarkably well. And if you think about gold maintaining its purchasing power over thousands of years of history, and when you look at the fact that central banks and governments everywhere are promising you 2% inflation, which over time destroys the purchasing power of your money, of your, of your currency, then the answer is very simple. If they are actively promising to destroy the purchasing power of the thing you have in your pocket, and there is an asset which over 6,000 years has maintained your purchasing power, it's incumbent upon you to understand why and do something about it. And right now, Bitcoin forms a part of that argument for sure. For me, it doesn't form a very big part of that argument. For others, it does perform a very, uh, hold a very big part of the argument. That's absolutely fine. But until, as I said earlier on, until I know what Bitcoin is going to do in what I suspect happens next. I just don't trust it enough yet to, to, to have it take the place of, of gold as my, as my safety blanket. Yeah. And you, 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 you have fingers in both pies, which is the, the, the perfect thing to be doing, right? It's not like, like you said before, it's not like you're on zero. So, right. you know, you, you I, can, I, I try, I try you, to be you consistent. skin in the I, game. I, I try and be thoughtful about all these things. And I, and I don't write either ideas or people off out of hand. I just, I've just seen other people do that over the years, and, it, and it's, a, it, it's not a sensible thing to do. But um, until I understand it, I'm, I'm just not prepared to take that leap of faith when, for me, there is another asset that I do have faith in um, that I don't need to go out on a limb for. Yeah. All right, mate. Well, we've been talking for almost two hours, and uh, that's a hell of a lot of your time. Um, I would, I would love to ask uh, another question. Like you've, you've interviewed so many people, the best of the best. Who's missing? Who's the one that got away? Who's missing you? Um, oh, there's, there's you a few want? people that I would, I would love to talk to. I'd love to, um, I'd love to talk to Mark Spitznagel. I think he's a. a, a a truly brilliant and truly original mind. I'd love to talk to Michael Burry. Um, I'd love to talk to Paul Tudor Jones. Uh, but, you know, 
what I've found is the, the guys you really want to talk to are the guys nobody's heard about, are the guys not necessarily in finance, but, but running businesses who, who've, who've built great companies and done it out of the public eye without a lot of fuss uh, and have created generational wealth for, for their families, their shareholders. Um, and there's, there is a seemingly limitless supply of those people. And so, you know, I, I haven't finished trying to, trying to talk to those people. I haven't finished trying to learn from those people. And, and, and hopefully I, I am never finished trying to do that because, um, you know, if, if I, if I, if I, if you see me stop doing that one day, then slap me around because it, it, it by definition means that I think there's nothing else I've got to learn. And God knows, uh, that is so untrue as to be almost laughable. I'd never stop you learning. I, I would usher you in a certain direction. Oh, I know. I know. I know. I'm, I'm just waiting for you to start sending me these books to read and, and ring them up every day, knowing that eventually you'll badger me and say, geez, I better read this just to get Princey off my back. You've got the one you know, um, which we talked about earlier, and I know you'll get around to reading it at some stage. It's gathering um, dust. Because... It's gathering dust. I'm sorry. I'll get around to it. I promise. I've, re- I re- I've reread Lords of Finance for the fourth time this summer, and I reread 1984 for the third time this summer. I could have spent that time reading the Bitcoin standard, so I apologize to you personally, Princeton. Yeah, <laughs> I'm actually reading 1984 right now. Um, I'm about three quarters of the way through, and this is my first read. I will not spoil uh, the end. So it's it. No, it's, uh, it's a fascinating uh, read so far. Well, Grant, um, it's been so great to get you on and um, to catch up and to go down these, um, these different rabbit holes and to learn more about you. And I'm sure um, many of the listeners will be uh, thankful that um, you've given up your time. Um, well, Princey, I, all I, could, I would like to thank you for, for indulging me for two hours. About, and I apologize to anyone who's made it this far and is going I went to see a I went to see a movie years ago. Someone put a thing on Twitter saying, "What's the worst movie you've ever seen?" And um, I recounted the story. I went to see a, a movie in New York called Eye of the Beholder, which was Ewan McGregor and Ashley Judd. And this film, I knew nothing about it. I was in New York for meetings, and I had like three hours to kill between meetings. And it was freezing cold and snowing, so I just went to the nearest movie theatre and went to watch a movie that was on. I thought, Ewan McGregor, Ashley Judd, thriller. How bad can it be? Well, I'll tell you how bad it can be. It was the worst <laughs> film. I've ever seen in my entire life. And the only reason I didn't leave the cinema was because it was minus 30 outside. So I just think I might as well stay warm. And when the, when the film finished, the final scene, the screen goes blank, there's a pause, and then the credits start going up. And from behind me in the dark, I hear a voice go, what the fuck? And by the time I got out of the cinema, there was a queue of about 50 people waiting to see the manager to get their money back. So for anybody <laughs> out there in the dark who, when you roll the credits on this podcast, says, what the hell have I been waiting to that for? I can only apologize, but I will do you the one favor of saving you from seeing Eye of the Beholder in return for wasting your time with this. That's that. Actually, that's another side to your personality that is very, very unknown, like your, your love of film. And uh, so when is the next podcast, uh, you know, like the, the Grant Williams? Uh, oh, I'd love, to do, I'd love to do a movie podcast. Don't get me started. I've got enough podcasts on the go. I'm, I'm, I'm a man juggling <laughs> plates. One day, one day, Princey. <laughs> one day my Princey right, come will on, come. We get, well, top film, let's leave the listeners on that. Anyone that says they have a top film is lying to you because I guarantee <laughs> you it changes every week. But I'll tell, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you two films 
I have categories. No, no, I'll tell you two films that if they're on and I'm flicking through mm. the channels, wherever I am, whatever time of day it is, I will stop and watch them. And I, and I've, Footloose? No. The Princess Bride, <laughs> which I watched again a couple of months ago. Uh, actually, I can give you several of these. The Princess Bride for sure. A Few Good Men, I'll watch every time I see it. Uh, the Untouchables, I'll watch every time I see it. The Godfather, I'll watch every time I see it. You know, I've got a bunch of films. That's how I determine what a good film is. If I'm flicking through the channels looking for something to watch, I won't go past it. And I've got so many of those. Yeah, but what about your guilty pleasures? Life's too, what are the guilty pleasure, real film. bad films that you just know you shouldn't be watching, but you can't oh, stop? Boy. Yeah, I, I'm not even ducking it. I can't even think. What, what are my guilty pleasure? I don't even know. I don't know. I mean, I've watched some You know there's a guilty pleasure film out there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, here's a guilty pleasure for you. How about Notting Hill? There's a guilty pleasure for you. Oh. I love that oh, film. Oh, man. I love that yeah. film. <laughs> uh, for me, it's it's one of like the old, real, random kind of ones, like something like Tremors. You know, like oh if, if I'm Kevin Bacon, through, yeah, I, yeah, I saw that when it first yeah. came out. The cinema in Japan it was, that would be 1989, probably. I would think. Right. I would, I would think that came out in 1989. Yeah, something random like that. That uh, if that's on, I just can't. I just got to watch the rest of it. Uh, it's uh, it's random. All right, Grant. Um, great place to leave it on a on a high fun Take note. Care, really appreciate you coming on. Take care. And um, if anybody uh, would like to reach out, would like to learn about your newsletter and uh, and sign up, where, where should we point them, mate? As long as they don't want to convert me. Okay. We've, I think we've gone through that. But you're welcome <laughs> to follow me on Twitter if you are so inclined. Uh, you won't find much about Bitcoin on there. Um, we'll go on for that matter. But you'll find me at TTMYGH. And uh, Things That Make A Hum is uh, at uh, www.ttmygh.com. And I will actually give another plug, things you mentioned earlier, for um, the podcast, which you can find on the iTunes store. Um, I think it's under the Grant Williams podcast. Um, how very grandiose of me using my own name, but it was just easier that way. <laughs> and, uh, and Are You Not Entertained? You can follow on Twitter at Entertained R. And uh, if you search for that in the iTunes store, you'll find that there too. So thank you, Princey, for that. Plug. No problem, mate. Um, it's been great catching up. Take care, Grant, and uh, look forward to the next one. Take been care, too mate. long. I'll see you soon. Take care. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that one. That was uh, amazing to uh, to get Grant on and uh, and share his thoughts. And um, yeah, I mean, very, very, very balanced on on the gold Bitcoin um, debate, which uh, which was interesting to hear. And do me a favor, guys, don't go jumping on the Twitter and um, you know uh, regurgitating um, some of the uh, the lines or quotes from this. Um, that's not uh, that's never going to be helpful. Certainly not with. Um, you know, people with, with the experience such as Grant, uh, it was just a, a pure honor to get um, to get him on and, and share his 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 backstory. You know, you know what shapes this career and uh, and the founding of, of Real Vision, which um, has been 
so monumental in shaping financial education over the last uh, six years or so that uh, that it's been around, and and the work he's done outside of that, you know, with his um, with his monthly newsletters, uh, you know, things that make you go. Mm, uh, he's put a hell of a lot of effort into that. He's definitely, oh my god, uh, how many presentations he's done at, uh, at conferences and so on. He's he's put a lot of work into education and um, saw, as as you heard, saw like the, this this like, inherent problem with the kind of information that we were being fed. And I, for one, have um, gained so much knowledge um, from from his work and and the others and the and the guests that Real Vision managed to attract, which still amazes me to this day. Um, so I have to be very very thankful for the macro picture, and that macro picture helped me come to Bitcoin. It, it was the understanding of the greater understanding understanding of macro markets that um, that helped me come to inform my opinion around what is the best use of my capital and my time um, going forward. And for that, I, I'm very thankful. Um, we we obviously have um, differing views on um, on where to uh, put our time and energy at the moment. Uh, but then again, we, we're of different ages and we're of different needs and of different um, uh, desires and um, and wants. And, um, you know, that's another factor that you, ha- you have to take into consideration. But I am fully, I, absolutely, there's no doubt in my mind that, um, you know, once Grant does uh, does pick up the uh, the Bitcoin standard and um, the other educational pieces that have been written out there, some of Breedlove's work, some of Parker's work, and um, listens to um, some other podcasts, then um, a, a few things might might click. And um, you know, he's a he's a hungry hungry human being, loves education, loves history, and um, that's. That's what Bitcoin is about, really. It's about um, you know studying the history of the past, and that includes gold, and then uh, trying to form an opinion and, and take that forward from here. So with that said, um, a huge thanks again, Grant. Really appreciate you coming on. And um, yeah, I hope to do it again soon sometime. And yeah, like you said, be great to meet in person. Have a... Have a great evening or afternoon or morning, wherever you are, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for um, sharing, commenting, liking, whatever it is that you do. Really appreciate that to help the show. And um, yeah, thanks again for uh, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten for supporting the show. If you guys are over in the US, go start uh, stacking some sats with Swan, swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten. And um, wherever you are in the world, if you're looking to start stacking some sats and uh, start your um, your journey into the rabbit hole, uh, go and check out at Friar Hass on Twitter. He has a list of the, um, the dollar cost average um, companies that are probably closest to you. So with that, guys, 
have a um, have a good one and uh, i'll see you on the next show and um yeah take it easy <laughs>